So please let yourself come back in and find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease for this time. One announcement, there is a cream-colored Mercedes 963DGR whose lights are on. So if that's yours. And a, a second announcement, just as people are coming back in. Tomorrow, Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock here, um, uh, there will be a Medicine Buddha blessing given by the uh, Venerable uh, Za Chaji Rinpoche, who is the young, um, youngish, I guess from my age, um, Tibetan Lama, who um, is currently residing in Woodacre, so I think of him as Woodacre Lama. Anyway, <laughs> he's uh, um, from Drepung Monastery, and... Uh, he was the Lama who came and uh, gave teachings on Monday night about, I think, three or four weeks ago. Um, so he speaks fluent English and is quite a wonderful being and teacher. And he's going to do Medicine Buddha um, here at Spirit Rock. And anyone who wishes to, tomorrow evening at 7, is welcome to come. So. So again, let yourself sit and comfortable and easy way. Coming back after some travels away, my inclination is to speak quite simply tonight. And when one entered uh, Wat Nong Bapong, the forest monastery of my teacher Ajahn Chah, the experience usually of entering the monastery um, was that it was a very simple place. Um, big trees, not quite like Muir woods, but somehow that sense of, of really ancient trees and simple paths under the trees and that were swept every day and uh, the simple life there. And the ways of teaching also were very simple. It wasn't a complicated or philosophical approach to spiritual life, but one that was very simple. And he would say um, to people who came who had all kinds of ideas of what needed to be done in the world, he'd look at them and say, before you can help others, you need to learn to quiet your own mind, open your own heart, and then you'll know best how to help others. And so tonight I'd like to speak about the first half of that, next week I'll follow with other parts, of the, the part before helping others of quieting our own mind, opening our own heart. Um, in the art of meditation as the quality of listening. In the Buddhist teachings, he said that there is one thing that is really central for human awakening, that's central to free ourselves from the entanglements in greed and fear and hatred, delusion. And it's particularly central for those of us in this time in such a busy and complicated society. If we wish to discover what's called the sure heart's release, to know for ourselves in our own experience the possibility 
of peace and freedom. And this one thing that's central has within it many qualities, honesty, love, surrender, devotion, a quality of wonder. But what it's called most simply in Pali, the word is sati, or in Sanskrit, smirti, um, which is the quality of listening, of a heartfelt attention that is often translated as mindfulness, that awareness of just what is true wherever we are. Now usually, especially in Western society, we live lives that are busy and quite goal-oriented, trying to get things done so you can get the next thing done, so you can get that, so you can get to sleep and get up early enough to get the next things done, and so forth. You know how that goes. And a lot of it's all written out in people's little books and schedules. Um, Mine, too. Alas. And then people come to spiritual life and it kind of gets to be the same. Even in meditation, you set up a goal and, well, I've sat this much, now I want to get this result or get this done. A good friend who recently died, Rick Fields, who was the editor of Yoga Journal and a Buddhist historian, um, we had a memorial service for him here about a week or so ago. When he first went to um, a, a long solitary meditation practice, he was a student of Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, and it was back in the, I don't know, like 1969 or 70 in Vermont, and he'd heard about meditation, got a little instruction, he was going to go in this hut and sit there for six months and get enlightened. That was his thing. So he got this little hut and karma choling and brought up a big sack of brown rice or whatever you ate in 1969 um, and a few Dharma books and got himself ready and started to sit and walk and meditate. He'd never done it for all that long, but he was determined. But unfortunately, as he found out, when he sat down, his mind wasn't terribly quiet. You know how it is. And the environment wasn't so quiet either because he was out in this beautiful forest, but the hut was right next to a kind of tumbling stream. So he would sit and start to try to feel his breath, and then the stream would make all this sound, and his mind would make sound, and it got worse than that. After a while, the stream began to play songs. At least that's what it sounded like. And they weren't his favorite tunes, it was like marching band stuff, right? So he'd sit, he'd hear the stream, and then John Philip Sousa or something would start playing. You never know what the mind will do. And it got so bad, he got really desperate. He, you know, what am I going to do? One day, he said, I went down in the stream, and he started moving rocks around <laughs> to see if he could get it to play a different song, right? <laughs> so even in meditation, we have these ideas of what's supposed to happen, and we get out there moving the rocks around, trying to make something be different. But what's asked of us is to listen not in our usual way of a product or accomplishing or fixing or even healing, but just a simple listening, the kind of listening we might give to our lover or our children or our parents or our garden or the world around us when we're sensitive. Ryonan, the Japanese poet, wrote in her 66th year, she said, 66 times have these eyes beheld the changing scenes of autumn. 
I've said enough about moonlight, ask me no more. Only listen to the voice of pines and cedars when no wind stirs. That kind of silent listening to the trees when there isn't even a breeze. Just to be present, the stream, the trees, one's own breath and body. This is the quality of mindfulness. A deep listening that allows us to discover the nature of this breath and body, this heart and mind, as it unfolds. How does it work? One of my favorite stories about listening that I haven't told in a while, but told over and over for many years here, comes from East Africa. And in this particular East African tribe, it's said that the birthday of a child is not counted from the day that it's born out of its mother's body, or even the day of its conception, which is true in certain um, tribal communities. But for this tribe, the birth date of a child is counted from the day it was first a thought in its mother's mind. That's the real birthday. And as soon as she decides, yes, I'm going to have a child with this particular partner, before doing anything else, she'll go and sit out under a great tree out in the fields and sit and wait until she can hear the song of that child that would be born to her and this partner. And only when she can hear the song of the child that wants to be born to them, then she knows she's ready and she'll sing it to herself and go back and teach it to her partner, so they sing it together when they make love as a way of inviting the child to join them. And then when she's pregnant, she sings it to the baby in the womb and teaches the midwife, so when the baby is delivered and born, the first thing the baby hears is a few people around singing its song. It's different than holding it upside down and whacking its butt, you know. <laughs> ah, here you are, and singing your song. And then it's taught to the villagers so that if the child falls down and cries, everyone knows, picks it up and sings their song, to the, sings the song to this child. When it gets older through rites of passage, bar mitzvah or whatever they do, they sing the song, right? <laughs> Marriage. And finally, at the end of life, as that person dies, the villagers, the people in the tribe gather around and sing the song to this person for their very last time. And when I first heard this story, I was quite moved, imagining living in a culture where we were known by one another's songs, that that song of the heart was how we saw and knew one another. And this is in part the quality of listening, because each person we meet, or each moment, circumstance, has a certain melody to it. This mindfulness, sati, which is an openness, a wholehearted attention. It's not just with the mind, but with all the senses in the body. To know what is present just now. And to know, in some way, sati comes with sampajanya, with this quality of what is the context of this experience? How is this dance unfolding? What is happening? So we're here in this moment, and we're aware of it as it opens, and how it moves and changes. This listening doesn't have a lot of ideas of how things should be. 
You know, ordinarily we're lost in our busyness and trying to accomplish things. Someone said to my teacher Ajahn Chah, isn't meditation kind of like self-hypnosis? And he said, actually it's more like de-hypnosis, that we're already hypnotized in a way. Um, and instead it means to let go of where we're going so much and be where we are, wherever that is. We live often in our stories, in our beliefs, a lot in our thinking. And thinking is a very useful servant, but a very difficult master. And in that thinking, things become kind of solid. We have a story about ourselves, how things have arrived, where we were born, what school we went to, who our parents are, what our work is, how our life will be. And the very thoughts tend to bring a kind of fixedness and rigidity and fear to our life. But with listening, if we look into space, we find this huge amount of space with a few planets and stars and vast interstellar regions of emptiness within which they dance and float. And you only have to go out at night under the stars for a few minutes and look up to remember that that's where we live. And the same if you look inside, if you take a microscope physically and look you know, in through the layers of cells and then molecules and atoms and subatomic particles till you get to whether it's string theory or whatever your particular description is, basically you get to nothing. You realize that the more deeply you look, the more there are holes in things until finally it's all holes, pretty much. It's also true in the mind and the heart that the more deeply we look and listen, the more open it can become. And so the quality of listening could also be described as one of making space or of an inner spaciousness with an allowance, an ease, a non-judging. The Buddha gives in his teachings initially four important areas to pay attention to if we want to quiet the mind and open the heart. Again, before we decide how to change the world, to look at this world that we're given, this very life. The first is the body that we've been given. And in the myth or the story of the Buddha's life, after he went into the forest and decided to become enlightened, he spent six years doing intensive ascetic practices of um, fasting and starving himself and sitting up all day and all night and um, sitting on beds of nails or whatever kind of thing you could do to try to quell his body and overcome it and control it so that his mind would be free and he would be free. And after six years, he was almost dead from the effort of struggling so much against himself and as the story is told, he was lying on the ground and some people said, oh, that the ascetic, that yogi Siddhartha is died. And some other people said, he hasn't died, he's just near death, he's doing ascetic practices, but still there's a little breath in him. That's how close he came. And he was lying there, realizing somehow that things weren't working very well in his meditation practice. <laughs> We've all had those moments. When it dawned on him, intuitively there came a vision a memory of being a young boy, seven or eight years old, in the springtime, 
seated under a rose apple tree in his father's garden. And here he was in his father's garden in the spring, leaning back against the rose apple tree. And he remembered how on that spring morning, and you've all had these spring mornings, everything became whole and complete and silent and beautiful and wondrous inside because he was in harmony with all things. There was a oneness to it. And then he realized, oh, I've been doing the wrong thing all these years of struggle against myself, fighting against myself, when naturally what's asked for is not to fight the body and try to get rid of things, but to discover that openness in the midst of all things that was there in my father's garden. Within this fathom-long body, this very body, said the Buddha, is found suffering, the cause of suffering, and the freedom from suffering, joy, awakening, peace, right here. So when we begin in meditation, we begin very simply by listening to the wisdom of the body. And of course, when you start to feel the body, often you feel the areas of tension and tightness and the, the kind of armor that we carry from uh, weeks and months and years of conflict and resistance that starts to get carried in us. Or we feel the fear of the body. Some people fear pain, and so we kind of distance ourselves. You know how it is. Other people fear pleasure, and we distance ourselves from that. And the idea isn't to change it or make it different or sit down and make meditation into another kind of body work. Okay, lower this shoulder and then I'll work on my hip and kind of project meditation, which would be endless. But instead, it's begin to feel the aliveness of this body itself and how if we bring attention to where it's held or knotted or tight, it starts to open. Sometimes when it opens, it hurts more, which is natural but it begins to want to open in a natural way and release. And we begin to realize the truth of grasping and the suffering it brings and the possibility through our attention, through conscious awareness of space, of breath, of allowing. And the body's own wisdom begins to teach us. And then there grows a kind of deepening capacity to be more fluid instead of rigid. And in some way also not to be so afraid of pain. Anybody not have pain? Please raise your hand. Okay, we got that one over, right? All right, so since it's part of, if not half of human experience, instead of contracting and being frightened, there comes the possibility of being with pain our own or another's, but first starting here and learning that even in the face of that, it's possible to be present and compassionate and spacious and wise. And you feel the pain and first it's frightening and then you want to get rid of it and there's aversion. And if you allow space around it, almost like some part of the music that's there, and allow yourself to feel it, it's not pain, it's fire and throbbing and and a little bit of fear and contraction all mixed together, and you listen to it, it too will show you how it opens. And a great freedom comes in. Aging. Anybody notice? I was coming back from the family trip this last week from Oregon, and 
we stopped at this restaurant in the Central Valley and was looking at the menu. And then I saw the thing that I wanted was on the seniors menu. <laughs> and then I saw that it said um, 55 and over. And I just had my 54th birthday. And I thought, well, I'm in my 55th year. I probably count, right? <laughs> so that was my first time of ordering from the seniors menu. You know? And it's true, isn't it, huh? I mean, not for all of you. I know there's some young folks here. But for some of us, it's really an amazing thing. The body has a certain life, and it does it. And you look in the mirror, and it's just what it does. And there's a wisdom. We can either resist and fight and struggle and all the pain, or we can learn to live with the wisdom of the body, to care for it, but not grasp it so much. The breath is the same thing. The breath becomes the entry into the body if we use it in meditation. Of course, for some people, it feels very boring. You know the story of the Zen master when the student said, my breath is really boring, grabbing the student and holding him underwater in the stream for a while. <laughs> and finally he let him up and he said, well, was, it, was, it, was your breath boring under there? <laughs> our breath, in some way, is a mirror to our life. It reflects our life. And so when you become attuned to the breathing, whether it's in a meeting or whether it's in an argument, not all of you, but those who might have such things, when it's, um, uh, when it's with a crying child or lovemaking or painting, you know, or whatever your work happens to be, um, when you tune into your breath, it's a way of dropping the attention into the body, of connecting the mind and body together. And you begin to feel that there's a natural rhythm to the breath that can guide you to a naturalness. The breath comes in, goes out, there's a pause. The same as the heart. The heart as a muscle differs from all the other muscles in the body. You know, how many push-ups could you do before the muscles of your arms or your stomach or something got so tired you'd have to stop? But the heart muscle keeps going all the time through your life. And it doesn't get tired because there's a phase of rest built into every single heartbeat. It beats, and then it rests, and it does it again. And in some way, the breath becomes that same place of rest, to feel the breath, to feel the pause between the breath. And all of a sudden, in a moment, even in complexity, here's a few breaths, things start to open again from being tight and contracted. In the same way that we can begin to feel the rhythms of the breath, that we can listen to the wisdom of the body and what it needs and how it wants to open, and more deeply than that, how to live in this body without grasping it so tightly so that we can be free in it. In that way, too, the Buddha suggests the same quality of listening to our feelings because so much of life is guided by our feelings. Your work, your relationships, your family, all this. You may have all kinds of ideas about it, which are sort of important, but it's how you feel that often determines all what happens, isn't it? And all these feelings come. You sit in meditation, and you don't know what feelings are going to come. You're not in charge. And desire comes in restlessness and boredom and planning and fear and 
joy and judgment and anger and peacefulness and excitement and lust and, you know, um, contentment. One thing comes after another. And part of the art of listening is to get back in touch with that stream of feelings. Because we're ruled by them often, but we don't know them. The danger, said Simone Weil, Weil, how do you say it, Simone Weil? The danger is not that the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but that by a lie it should persuade itself that it is not hungry. And there's a danger often in the way, in the speed of our life, that we not only don't um, pay attention to our feelings, but we don't even know what we're feeling. And yet they're governing our lives all the time. And so to begin to pay attention allows us to honor sadness and grief when it's appropriate, and delight and joy when that's appropriateness. To begin to notice how many feelings come and go, and when we do notice the feelings then, when we're actually there, we can learn which are the ones that lead us to openness and peace, which are the ones do we, we get entangled in. And it's not the same for everyone. But first, it's just listening and knowing them. Remember that cartoon from Sylvia? She's one, that's one of my favorite cartoon strips. Someone, this woman comes to Sylvia and she says, um, my husband won't talk about his feelings. And Sylvia says, so what else is new? She says, wait a minute. And she comes back in and she's dressed in her, um, uh, got a kind of hat and a crystal ball like she's a soothsayer. Now she's going to tell her fortune, a fortune teller. She says, wait, let me look into my crystal ball. And she says, ah, yes. Um, men all over America will begin to talk about their feelings starting in 19, December 1999. Women all over America will be sorry within minutes. <laughs> now, it's not completely true. You know, coming, I'm about to go off in a couple of weeks to a men's retreat, and the, the level of feeling in the men's retreats is really quite wonderful and extraordinary. But nevertheless, there is a sacred quality to the listening to feelings because it's through knowing feelings that we find contraction and fear and we also find in the midst of that the possibility for compassion and freedom and ease. Like the uh, letters left at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial as a kind of altar. One letter a mother wrote, kind of written in the handwriting of this mother, if I could, I would simply lead each person in hand past this monument and ask them to read each single name and imagine every life that was cut short like my own child. Then what would we do? If we listen deeply, what's required also with this quality of awareness is a profound compassion because some of what we find is beautiful and some of what we find is the pain of being a human being on the earth in our life in these times. 
then the next quality or the next area of attention, first in, again, quieting our own mind and opening the heart, the body, the breath, really listening with wisdom, knowing what feelings are there and beginning to get a sense of freedom with them. Then comes the area of the mind. And one part of the mind you could call this awareness, this consciousness that knows what's happening. A whole other part is the story-making machine, you know, and it can be, it can be unmerciful at times, can't it, your mind? I mean, sometimes people will come on meditation retreats and they'll sit and their knees will hurt and their back will hurt and they'll wish the pain would go away and then after a while they'll say, oh no, I wish I had my knee pain back because it's sort of quiet now and now I have to be with my mind and that's worse because it keeps thinking the same thoughts over and over and over again. And it does, it does advertisements. It does commercials. You know, it does old rock and roll songs. Muriel Ruckheiser, the poet, said, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. I was just up in Ashland with my brothers and their wives and a whole bunch of nieces and nephews. We all went up to do a bit of river rafting and then to the plays and the Shakespeare plays. And one of the plays we saw was a was a beautifully done version of Othello, which was very, very moving. Um, And it was moving in a number of ways. First, it was moving to see art so well done. The the art of the theater, the staging, the the plot of the play. And at the same time, it was heartbreaking. You know, and there were certain moments where I wanted to kind of go out and say, Othello, don't listen to Iago, you know. He's telling you lies. Don't listen. I didn't want it to end the way I knew it was going to end. (laughs) And it was kind of a heartbreak because it was about human evil. And here there was this incredible art, which is very inspiring that we have the capacity to make something so creative as a species. And then that the art would be about the truth of our condition, which is that there's a potential for awakening and love and compassion And also there's a potential for destruction and suffering that we can create. The mind is the source of that, the story machine. And it has no pride. It will do anything. (laughs) And so the first thing that one wants to learn in meditation is to find that spaciousness which can begin to know the thoughts of the mind without believing them all. Because if you believe them, like Othello, you are in trouble. Um, The image the Buddha gave in training mindfulness, he said, suppose there was a man who was given a jug filled to the brim with water to carry on his head, as people do in India, and ordered to walk through a crowded marketplace, and behind him was a second man with a sword who was ordered by the king to cut off the first man's head should a single drop of water spill. How would that person walk through the marketplace, a crowded marketplace? Well, first of all, he would have to be quite attentive, wouldn't he? Otherwise it would spill and he'd lose his head, off with his head. But the second is that that attention couldn't be a rigid one or the slightest jostle and it would all spill. Instead, it would have to be spacious and easy and encompassing and flexible so that he could move through that situation 
one step at a time, one moment at a time. When we begin to pay attention to the mind, there will be plans and memories and thoughts and funny things and sad things and things that we wish would be different and all the kinds of stories that we tell. And then you begin to notice the kind of endings that are on your stories, you know? Do you write tragedies or comedies? I mean, Shakespeare had a kind of broad repertoire, but if you look, you might find in yourself that there are certain themes that repeat over. And then you begin to wonder, well, do I have to believe these stories about who I am and where I'm going? Or could I listen and say, that's a story, and here's this moment afresh with this person, with this sunset, with this um, uh, meal that's in front of me, with this difficulty. Remember the story I like to tell of Roberto Di Vincenzo, the great um, uh, athlete and, um, from Argent Argentina. He was kind of the Arnold Palmer or Jack Nicholas. He's a golfer in Latin America. And he won one of his earliest tournaments and got the check and smiled for the cameras and all that. And after that, he went out to his car in the parking lot and a woman walked up to him and she was kind of tearful, congratulated him on his victory and then told him this whole long story about how ill her child was and near dying and she couldn't pay the doctor bills and the hospital expenses. And he was so touched, he was his reputation of being a real gentleman that he took out a pen and he endorsed the day's winnings. He said, you know, here, pressing it in her hand, make some good days for the baby. Next week, he had lunch in another country club, and one of the officials came up and said, you know, some of the guys in the parking lot told me about this woman coming up to you, the whole story, and after you won the tournament, he nodded, yeah, I said, well, I gotta tell you the truth. She's a phony, she has no sick baby, she has no children at all. You know, she's fleeced you, my friend. And Di Vincenzo looked up and he said, you mean there's no baby that's dying? And the official said, that's right. And he said, well, that's the best news I've heard all week. <laughs> so we have a possibility of writing the story. We get certain part of the plot, but then what kind of ending are you going to put on the story? And if we really look, we discover that happiness doesn't come from clinging or from hatred or from perpetuating conflict. It comes from letting go, from ease, from finding that compassion in the heart, or from forgiveness. As Ed Brown has written one of his poems, Cooking, he says, any moment preparing this next meal we could be gas 30,000 feet in the air, soon to fall out poisonous on leaf, frond, and fur. And still we cook, putting a thousand cherished dreams on the table to nourish and reassure those near and dear. In this act of cooking, I bid farewell. Always, I insisted you alone were to blame. This last instant, my eyes open, and I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness I've withheld for so long. The mind creates the abyss 
said my teacher Nisargadot. The mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. So we see all this conflict and all the things about who should be and how they should have and what, and then realize that's a story and it's possible to live in the reality of compassion and openness. Listening to this body, listening to feelings, listening to the mind and knowing its nature, finding a freedom in the movement of mind. And listening, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is awareness of the Dharma, which in this case means the laws of things, the ways things are. And the more we become quiet and take some time to sit in meditation and listen, the more we notice how it's all changing, how impermanent it is. The thoughts and feelings and sensations and ideas arise in space and pass away. Impermanent. And we find a place where we can rest, where the heart is untroubled in the midst of pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow. They all come and go slow and fast and hard and soft. Because what liberates us most deeply is not changing this world. You've tried that a long time, so have I. Not terribly successfully. What brings freedom to the heart is seeing the world for what it is and loving it anyway. It is the truth that liberates and not our efforts to be free. And as we listen and look, wherever we do, in the world of the senses, and the world of things around us, within our own mind and heart, the more closely we look, the more it changes. The more it shows that it's a river that we can't hold or stop or possess. And the more we see we're not separate from that river, it's not like we're on the side watching it, that the river is who we are. We're everything connected with it all. We are nothing and everything. Alan Watts wrote this book, The Taboo of Knowing Who You Are. That you're not allowed to know who you really are. We are nothing and everything. In this listening, we step back from being the person we think we are and feel this life as it flows like a river, a change and find that place in the heart of wisdom in its midst. This is not so easy. We always get caught up in going somewhere, in looking for security again, trying to make something, some new project, trying to protect ourselves, or trying to repeat some experience. You can't repeat experience. It cannot be done. It's always new. To try to repeat an experience is like trying to hold your breath. I got it. I want another one. Just like it. You know, (laughs) don't want it to change. Anybody succeed in it? So instead, the quality of listening is to discover, without a goal, the experience of this moment and this one with a spaciousness of mind and an ease or freedom of heart, a kind of presence. Mindfulness, then, doesn't judge, 
it's not even quiet. That would, that's just quiet. That's being silent or concentrated. It's not those things. You can be mindful of that and say, it's quiet now, isn't it? Or it's not so quiet. Or I'm concentrated now. I'm very focused. Or I'm not so concentrated. All those rise and fall within the space of awareness. Mindfulness is this presence of being, looking in the eyes of another person, feeling one's own breath, taking a step out your front door again the next morning to a new day. And it has in it sensitivity and a kind of humility that one Zen master called don't know mind. Not realizing that we're not experts. You know my favorite Ryokan poem that I read. Today's spring day begging is finished. At the crossroads I wander by the side of the Buddha shrine and hang my bowl to talk with the children. Last year a foolish monk, this year no change. <laughs> There's a kind of humility in it that we're not, you know, in charge and we're going to be this great person or something. All you need is a teenager in your house to help remind you if you've forgotten. Instead, this quality of presence has a kind of innocence to it. One of the people um, for, that I've taken some inspiration from in this way is a man named Ron Jones who lives in San Francisco who um, always wanted to be a basketball coach. Um, and somehow he ended up the only job that he could get, I guess, you know, just for, for high school or things like that, was he was finally invited at s some point to, um, to try to coach the basketball team at the San Francisco Center for the Specially um, Handicapped People. And he went in the first day in there, you know, looking for his team with all these ideas of what he was going to do. And there were only four players who came, one of whom was in a wheelchair. And he thought, well, this is going to be a pretty tough team. And then he said this six-foot tall black woman came charging out of the men's room and said, I'm on the team coach too. And he said it took him 45 minutes just to get them all in a line facing the same direction. And that was kind of the start of his team. But he did it. He wrote a wonderful book about this. Um, you know, and uh, he had to throw all his plans away and make basketball fun. And they had practices and they got cheerleaders and they had hot dogs and they didn't have five people on the team. Sometimes they had six or eight or twelve, depending who came, even during the games. And sometimes they'd stop in the middle of the game, put music on, dance a little bit, <laughs> you know, start the game up again. They became the only basketball team in history to win a game by over a million points. <laughs> When one of the members got hold of the little scoring thing and was having such a good time pushing the button for their side. Hmm. So part of the quality of listening is not to make it different. I mean, it's bizarre enough, right? Look at this body that you've been given. A little bit of fur at one end, you know, and we talk about this, the whole of the, that end in which we stuff dead plants and animals, right, and mush it up with our teeth and kind of, or, I mean, try actually being mindful a little bit when you make love, and it's bizarre, and it is. It's great, it's wonderful, but it's really strange. 
you know? Just being in a human body with all these things that wiggle and stuff like that and burp and things, you know? It's such a mystery and part of the awakening of the Buddha was to see the mystery of life rather than be caught in the struggle of life. Um, Lou Richmond, who spoke about mindfulness and work a couple of months ago here, some of you know him as a Buddhist teacher, um, uh, was in, is in the hospital actually when we closed, maybe we would do a little chant for him. He had encephalitis and he just about died. He was in a coma and they thought he was gone and now he's just coming back. I was talking to his wife because he can't have visitors at this point. She said, and he's just coming out of this coma and he can't even speak. He's got a trach in, so he can't speak, but he has a little spelling board and he can begin with a pointer to spell words of what's happening. He was very close to death and now his body, and he's just getting his bodily function back. And she said he was just starting to first realize he could move his fingers again. And then she looked at him. He's a, he's a musician. He's a really great pianist. And she said, I can see that you're going to be able to play piano again. And he just started to weep, just hearing that. And it's such a beautiful thing to make music or to walk in your garden or to see your children or your parents or the particular people you love and to see a tree, not just a tree, but that tree, the plum tree in your yard or the oak tree, the live oak outside of your window to be alive in that way, not to cling it to it, but to know it for what it is in this moment. As Mary Oliver says, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your life depends upon it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. And this quality of innocence and mystery and openness lets us hold the fears and the sorrows, the war and the racism and the hatred with compassion because it's part of our human life to hold that with wisdom. And it also lets us see the beauty of the tree and the sunset and the people we love because if you lose the sense of beauty, you can't bring anything beautiful back to the world. If we practice this simple and fundamental practice of listening, of opening, how does this mind and body work? How do we get contracted and caught in fear and grasping and hatred? How do we release things into spaciousness and forgiveness and freedom? If we do this, and it's not just once, it's like making music or learning piano or whatever instrument, you have to practice it for a while. It's not just one lesson. But if we devote ourselves to this freedom of the heart, gradually we discover that it is musical, that beautiful music can get played in anybody's life, and that things want to open, that the body wants to open, that the heart wants to open, and that the mind wants to open, if we listen. People love it too when you listen to them. We'll talk about that next week. Here we're just mostly trying to listen to this that we've been given. 
and that always something new will be born with this quality of listening and attention. We become open, respectful, kind of tempered with things, easygoing, compassionate. There's this description of Zen Master Suzuki Roshi in the beginning of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where um, the translator says, a master is a person who's actualized that freedom which is the potential for every human being. He or she exists full in, freely in the fullness of their being. The flow of their consciousness is not the fixed, repetitive patterns of our usual self-centered way, but arises spontaneously and naturally from the actual circumstances of the present. This results, the results of this in terms of the quality of their life are extraordinary. Buoyancy, vigor, straightforwardness, simplicity, humility, joyousness, uncanny perspicacity, and unfathomable compassion. Their whole being testifies to what it means to live in the reality of the presence. The reality of the present. To be free means to live where we are and no place else. And this freedom, which the Buddha speaks of, is your true nature, your Buddha nature, your birthright. And it's there in a moment of awareness. Oh, in this moment, in in a conflict, in difficulty, all of a sudden, a breath, a moment of mindfulness, a moment of attention, just to where we are. Oh, yes, just here, and we can be free. And when we do open, and it's not easy to open, you have to open to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. There's no way around it. If you open your heart, you get the whole catastrophe. You get the pain and you get the pleasure. But if we're willing to open with that kind of courage and strength and tenderness together, which can be very fiery, then beautiful things start to come to us and through us. I was reading this new biography of Suzuki Roshi called Crooked Cucumber. Part of what made him the remarkable Zen master that he was is that he let this student come to his temple in Japan before he came to America, um, who other people said shouldn't come because this person was very unbalanced mentally. And he let this person come in anyway, and then this person um, killed Zen Master Suzuki Roshi's wife. If you can imagine that, in his temple. And so when he talked about the need for forgiveness or compassion, or forgiveness for oneself, or being in the presence of suffering, It came from such a depth of his own willingness to look at the suffering of life. We all have that in some way, maybe not that dramatically. But because we are open to the world, we're a part of the world. um, And it's a part of us, we know that it's in our world. And we carry that. And if we wish to be free, there's no running away. We have to be where we are, and we can do it. That's the beautiful thing. That's the teaching of the Dharma, that it's really possible. I remember being in the 
refugee camps on the border of Cambodia when all these people were fleeing for their lives. And the camps were made initially, it was in the dry season because you couldn't come out in the wet season. It was very hot. It was like 110 degrees in this dry, barren rice, um, rice fields. And the UNHCR put up little bamboo huts that you could touch the walls of in both directions. And there were 50 or 100,000 refugees in each camp, a whole series of camps. And by the time I got there, the huts and the camps had been there for several months. And there was the only water that there was was this great big pit well that they dug with a bulldozer at the far end of this camp, about a half a mile or a mile away. And you had to walk way down to the bottom. And there was a kind of a, a little muddy, slightly muddyish lake, and you'd get your bucket of water. And to get the water, you'd have to wait in line, sometimes an hour in the sun, for all the people in front of you. When I went to the camps and began to work there, one of the things that was most remarkable is that in front of each of these tiny bamboo huts, there was a, a yard, so to speak. There was a little bit of ground before the, ne the path and the next hut, which was about a foot and a half by three feet. And in most of them, there was a garden. And people would wait in the sun with their buckets on a pole over their shoulders every day, a couple times a day, and get their water and water these little squash plants and bean plants. And these were people whose lives were devastated. The temples burned, villages destroyed, families, um, you know, there'd be an uncle and one nephew or, a, you know, a grandfather and two granddaughters and everyone else had died. And yet somehow in the midst of that, they were planting their little plants of squash and beans and what they could and watering them because something in us wants to grow. It wants to open. It wants to love and be free. And if we pay attention, the heart learns this trust of life itself, even in difficulty, that you can go through any difficulty and overcome any obstacle and find that place of peace, because it is, in the end, who you really are. I end with a poem I haven't read in a long time that many of you know, I think, from Pablo Neruda. I stopped reading it because it became so popular, but I love it anyway. Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. And those who prepare green wars, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers and sisters in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness 
of never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I'll go. So let's sit for a minute, please. And as you sit, listening, the breath and body, the heart and mind. Let yourself be spacious, compassionate, easy. Rest in that place of your own true nature, of wisdom, and the love that wants to open in spite of, in the midst of, in the face of everything you've been given in this life. Learn to trust it. like to do a very simple chant and then go out into the summer evening. The chant is one word, which is the beginning of many of the great Buddhist texts. And in India, when you meet someone, you put your hands together and say namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. And the root of the word namaste is the word namo in Sanskrit or Pali, which means to bow to or pay your respects or honor. In a way, to listen is to bow to things, joys and sorrows of the world. So I'd like us to chant the word Namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel what you wish to pay respects to, your own body and heart, to the difficulties of those that come to mind, and the beauty of those that come to mind, whatever. And in particular, I think of Lou Richmond in the hospital, and of anyone you know, who is suffering or in difficulty, and may you bow to them and wish them freedom and compassion and well-being. Namo
this week to really listen, listen with your heart to your own life and to how you move in this world. Find that place of wisdom and awakening that's there within you. Thank you. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.